place. I saw you light the ballroom with your sparkling eyes so blue. Graceful as an angel's wing, I dreamed a dance with you. You whispered slyly, softly. You told me you would be true. We spun around a thousand stars. I dreamed a dance with you. It all starts that way. The dream of a dance that you hope and pray will last forever. It all starts there with words and promises and a commitment. And God has his plan and you have your plan. It all begins. But then where do you go from there to learn about marriage? Where do you go to find the steps to the dance and the lessons for for a dance that will span decades. Where do you go? Where do you learn what it means to commit, what it means to be a couple? In the Wall Street Journal this past Tuesday, there was an article about how to make marriage last. In the Wall Street Journal, it was called Happy Couples Kiss and Tell. Even marrying the right person gets you only part way. Ask the couples themselves, and they'll likely credit some combination of hard work and sheer blind luck. No one says that every day or even every year was rosy. It's Valentine's Day, and on Valentine's Day, our thoughts turn toward, toward love. But commitment is really what makes all the difference. In New York over Thanksgiving, I was walking through Saks Fifth Avenue and, and I saw this, this ad and it announced boldly, I believe in commitment. I believe in commitment. And I, I stood there for a minute and I thought, what is it really trying to say? And what, what is the real meaning in the middle of a society that seems to struggle with the idea of commitment? that seems to have lost its way in terms of, of the value of commitment in many different areas of life. The words, I believe, and commitment stand in, in stunning contrast to what is swirling around. Jenny Sanford wrote a book, Staying True. She was married to the governor of South Carolina, but now she's filed for divorce. She wrote in her book about commitment. I believe enduring love is primarily a commitment and an act of will. And for a marriage to be successful, that commitment must be reciprocal. She wrote a book about how the dance of her marriage ended. The commitment wasn't reciprocal. And so what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about 
men and women and about the dance of marriage and about commitment. While people throw all kinds of ideas out on the table, uh, men usually like the idea, the theological idea of they are in charge because God put them in charge. And they, they find verses that say things like, you know, I'm the head and, and, and uh, you know, they're in charge. As long as men are in charge, they feel that it's a pretty good deal the way God put this all together. You know, and women find other kinds of verses that talk about love and grace and, and living life together and, and wisdom. And, and, and when those things happen, women feel like, well, God gave them a pretty good deal too. An excellent wife who can find for her worth is far above jewels. And so she wants to be esteemed as a great treasure. He wants to be obeyed as a great leader. And so these different theological opinions sort of get tossed around. What I love about the Bible is, is its expansiveness. There, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of verses in the Bible, and you cannot exhaust it in a lifetime of study. And as I was preparing, I came across two verses that I really believe God gave to me to look at. And these two verses, I think, tell the true story of commitment, the true beginning of the dance of marriage. 1 Corinthians 11, 11 and 12. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. In the middle of a, a world where, where there was a, a male hierarchical system of power, in the middle of a, a societal system and a family system where the man called the shots and the woman just hoped for the best, Paul announces something very different. Paul announces something really that harkens back to the very beginnings of marriage itself. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man. And you would have expected him to write that. But these next six words were not expected. Nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. And then he puts the capstone, the capstone on the dance. But everything comes from God. So let me this morning teach you the dancing lessons that will give you the dance of marriage. The first dancing lesson is what I call the dance of power. Everybody comes into a relationship wondering who makes the final decision? Who is in charge? Where does the buck stop? Where do I have authority? Who do I have authority over? And all those questions miss the points in terms of the dance of power, for the dance of power is about something so very different indeed. One of the places that you can go to to try to understand the dance of power is Ephesians chapter 5. And in Ephesians chapter 5, there's a verse that is often talked about and quoted, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, where it says, Wives, submit to your husbands, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Wives, 
Submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. If you really, if you take that verse and you just read it, let's say I wrote that verse down the way Paul wrote it, exactly the way he wrote it. And I folded it up on a piece of paper and I gave it to you. And I said, hey, take this with you. And when you get a minute during the day, sit down, have a cup of coffee, read this verse, think about it and see what it says to you. So you get excited. You got the verse in your pocket. You go out, you live your, your life you know, all the busy schedules and everything. And then you get a moment for a cup of coffee. So you sit down and you remember, you've got this piece of paper that I gave you. You open it up. I've written it exactly the way Paul wrote it. And you read this. Wives to your husbands as unto the Lord. Or let's just keep it short. Wives to your husbands. And you're going to go, what? Wives what? There's, there's something missing there. There's no verb there in that sense. There's no action there. Wives, what? What is supposed to be there? Well, that's the way Paul originally wrote it. There is no verb there in the verse. There's no, it doesn't say, it has never said, it will never say, wives submit. Where is the verb? The verb is in verse 21, where it says, submit to one another out of your reverence for Christ. In other words, everybody's job is to submit. It doesn't work unless everybody submits. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite verses, and please check this out later because it's an amazing verse. It tells you what the wisdom from heaven is in James 3.17. And it says in that list of all these things that wisdom is, God's wisdom, in that list, it says willing to yield to others. So God's idea of wisdom is will, being willing to yield to others the last time I looked at that, it sounds a lot like submit. If you want to be wise, you are going to submit. But that's just when somebody will say, hey, but what about in Genesis chapter 2 where it says Adam needed a helper? A helper is somebody that helps a person who's doing a job. Adam was the CEO of the garden. Adam was the big kahuna of the farm. Adam had all this stuff that he had to get done. He was the keeper and the namer of all the animals, and he couldn't get it all done. He needed an executive assistant. He needed somebody to keep it all straight. And so the woman is the assistant. Helper. Done. Doesn't say that. The word helper is used 18 times in the Old Testament, 18 times. It's used twice to describe the woman in Genesis chapter 2. Helper suitable, it says. Then again, helper suitable. All other uses of that word helper, the other 16 uses of that word, always describe one person. It's always the same person, and that person is always God. When's the last time God was your assistant? When's the last time you just needed God to kind of keep track of your stuff because you were so busy and you were doing so much? And so the two of them are there, and it says, for this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and will cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, and everything was good because the woman comes in that sense of, of strength. The word actually means to save, and so the woman saves the man from being alone. And then where... Where does the buck stop and who has the power and who makes the decisions? It's always best if that's left 
to God, if that's God's job. That's, that's the job that he wants. That's the job that he offers us, that he will help us by making decisions that are good and right for us. So the dance of power really isn't about power at all. It's only about power in terms of learning submission, learning the dance that two need each other very, very much, that without each other, you're just not going to make it, and you're going to defer to each other, and you're going to submit one to another. And when that happens, uh, and when that truth finally registers, there's usually somebody that asks, well, who submits first? And I was reading a book, because it's a, it's a really good question. Well, who goes first? Who submits first? And this author really got it right. He said, the more mature person goes first. And so you just show how mature you are. You go first, and you will, you will learn the dance of power the way God always intended for it to be in marriage. Then there's the dance of reality. The dance of reality asks questions like, What's really going on between us? Really going on? What can we control? What can't we control? What's making it work? What's breaking it down? What's stretching our faith? What do we need? Gail called my attention to the Today Show uh, from last Friday, and she said there's, there's a whole series there about relationships and this one section was really, really good. So we were able to get a hold of it. And, uh, and there were six questions that 217 married couples came up with. It was a survey done by the National Institute of Health for Clark University. And I call these six questions, six good next to normal questions for your marriage. The first one is, how are we doing? This is the, the dance of reality. How are we doing? How are we really doing? Not how do we hope we're doing or how would we want to say we're doing, but how are we doing? The second question is, what's good about our relationship now? What's good about it right now? It's a great question. The third one is how can we work together on, and then you get to fill in the blank. And you don't have to just have one blank. You can have two or three or five. How can we work together on this? How can we work together on finances? How can we work together on parenting? How can we work together on growing closer to God? Number four, what do you need more, more of from me? What do you need more of from me? Boy, that's a great question. How about this? When we disagree, how can we understand each other better? Remember my my paradigm about the conflict, and then there's a defense that you put up, there's a fear, then you get back to the wish and the hope. That's right there. When we disagree, how can we understand each other better? How can we get to our wishes and to our hopes? And then finally, how satisfied are you with our physical and emotional intimacy? One of the interviewers there on the Today Show remembered a time when she actually got to interview Billy Graham late in life. He and his wife of so many years, Ruth Bell Graham, uh, were in just the, the, final, the final twirls of their dance of marriage. And 
she somehow brought up this topic of intimacy, and Billy Graham said, we are no longer able to have physical intimacy, but we love each other with our eyes. We love each other with our eyes. And you can just see that in the, the mind and heart of this interviewer, that that was one of the most beautiful things she had ever heard in her entire life. But we love each other with our eyes. If you will take those questions and you will just take those and, and, and work on, on answering those questions with each other, you will have a dance lesson that will improve your ability to dance well into the future. There is the dance of growth, which asks the question, why are we dancing in the first place? Why are we even doing this? And a better question is, how do we want to grow our relationship? I look at it and I say, there's six ways to grow. If you just tick them off real quickly, experientially. So many couples talk for years and years and years, oh, we always wanted to do this, and we're always hoping to do that. We'd like to go here, and we'd like to see this, and we'd like to fly to Europe, and we'd like to see Alaska, and we'd like to, to have this opportunity. And they never get around to doing that because they get so busy doing life that they miss the dance of marriage. Grow experientially. Do that thing that you've been talking about that you've always wanted to do. Do that one thing. Another way to grow is devotionally, to really learn what's in each other's hearts and begin to respond to that which is in the heart, the stuff that is, is good, the stuff that is, that is hard, the conversations that are a joy to have and the conversations that are sometimes so difficult to have. You can grow sacrificially where you say, you know, let's get to this place where where our marriage is not just all about us, but it's about what we can do for others and what we can give and what we can invest in and what we can, can leave behind that speaks to our love and our dance. Educationally. Educationally means you engage the process of shaking the rust off of your cogitations and you do something that, that makes your mind come alive again that sets your, your mind and your brain on fire a little bit. Spiritually, going on a retreat, taking a marriage class, doing something that gets your heart and mind connected better to God and to each other. Financially, figuring out your finances, growing in your understanding of, of how you can make some adjustments now. They're going to make you so much more financially free 10 years from now. dance of forgiveness is a big lesson. This is the question that kind of sets it up. Can I understand and accept your sincere apology for not meeting the requirements of love? And follow that up with how much trust has been broken and how can trust be restored? Can I understand and accept your sincere apology for not meeting the requirements of our love. In Jenny Sanford's book, as she writes and tells the story, and she tells it very honestly, and I appreciated her honesty 
so much as a, as a woman, as a mother, as a Christian. Uh, she just opened up her heart and she didn't try to hide anything at all. And, and the sad part of that story with her, with her husband, the governor, is that she over and over again says in, in the book, she would have forgiven him. She wanted to forgive him. She wanted to keep the marriage and, and dance again. And all she asked for was one thing. She asked for a humble, repentant heart from her husband. She asked that he would be true to their, to their marriage, that he would be true to their love, that he would be true to their boys, to their family. And throughout the book, as she presents this to him, he is not humble and he is not repentant. And so she ends up having to say, too much trust has been broken. Trust cannot be restored. The dance is over. It ended. Can I understand and accept your sincere apology for not meeting the requirements of love with humility, with sincerity, with repentance? We can dance again. Without it, the music fades. There's the dance of commitment. The dance of commitment. I put it like this. What vows do we need to remember? What vows do we need to remember? In this book, Marriage and Other Acts of Charity, a woman who's a minister and a chaplain writes about a couple that she's meeting with to help them plan their wedding. I hand them a selection of wedding readings. We discuss the location for the ceremony, the order of service, the number of bridesmaids and groomsmen, the flavor of the cake, and whether an iPod can be programmed to provide music for the processional and recessional. What about vows, asked Melanie. Well, I said, you've got a few choices. There are the traditional love, honor, and cherished vows, which come in a few versions. I hand them a sheet of paper. There are less traditional vows, more paper, and of course, you could um, write your own. I've heard people stand together before God and solemnly promise to make the coffee every morning, vow to never go to bed mad. I've also heard couples bowing to what they imagine to be the dictates of realism, promise only to remain married so long as love shall last. You aren't really promising to feel love, I told Jeremy and Melanie with approval. They've gone with traditional vows. You are promising to do love, to love, honor, and cherish a fresh, productive, and attractive partner is easy. That's when it's morning coffee, chocolate at Valentine's Day. But when your partner is discouraged and unemployed or injured, when he or she has Alzheimer's and can't remember your name, then loving, honoring, and cherishing will need to find alternative modes of expression. But it's still loving, honoring, and cherishing. The words are elastic enough to cover everything from your first dance together to your first day. And, and you want us to actually say, till death do us part, Melanie asked carefully. Look at it this way, I said. Being parted by death is actually your best case scenario. Being parted by death 
is what happens if a marriage works. Wow, said Melanie. Wow. I never thought of it that way, said Jeremy. They left my office look, looking sober, even a little stunned. I know the night is dying, dear. I know the day will dawn. The dancers may disappear. Still the dance goes on and on. What vows do we need to remember? The dance of commitment. The vows are really not complicated for better or worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. They can be broken. They can, they can be like what happened to Jenny Sanford. They can be broken, but they can also be worked on. Look at your vows. Which ones do you need to work on today? We are, I think, the last bastion of holding on to these things in society, the church. Where do you go to hear that challenge anymore? Where do you go where anyone calls that to your attention anymore. What vows do you need to remember now? And then there's the dance of the future. How are the seasons of life changing our steps? What legacy do we want to write? What do we want people to say about our marriage years from now? What do we want our children to say and our grandchildren to say, and our friends to say, and our, and our church to say, what legacy do we want to write about our dance? Looking back, what do we want to build a future on? When I did the 50th anniversary wedding for Ken and Janet, as you heard, I turned to Ken and I said, Ken, is there something you would like to say to Janet? He said, I was at a little loss for words, but I looked at Janet and I thought about our lives and I thought about Janet and I thought about the love I have for her. The words that came to my mind were, thank you. Thank you for spending 50 years of your life with me. Thank you for all the plans and all the dreams. Thank you for the future we have together and they turned and looked at each other and said thank you and the dance went on there's the dance of power and it's truly a lesson of submission and yielding there's the dance of reality where you have to truly answer some tough questions and fill in some blanks that reveal what you really need to work on in your marriage, that reveal what's good about your marriage and where you need to, to focus. There's the dance of growth where you do something that you've always wanted to do and you, you get it done, where you grow closer to God and you, 
figure some things out. Don't make your marriage stronger. There's a dance of forgiveness. It's a powerful dance. It takes two to make that happen, two humble, repentant people. There's the dance of commitment. When you look at those vows and you say, we let this get a little weak. We can, we can work on making this stronger now. And there's the dance of the future. When you ponder the legacy that you are writing for those who will come after you. And God decided to send a letter to those of you who are married. Dear married friends, Marriage is fullness of being. In male and female heartistry, I paint your minds with stinging colors of love. Surprised at that? It sounds like it feels. Indeed, the colors of love must forever sting since they are burning clues of a lost time. The painter expertly flings heaven's caustic hues upon soul canvas. It's the lone way you'll find each other since you've forgotten the dance. You see, in the beginning, I fashioned living beings desperate for each other's hearts, beings who could not survive without deeply knowing each other's souls. They reveled in the mystery of oneness. They danced in the miracle of unified flesh. My spirit draws you to that splendid beginning. Marriage was the beginning. You were made to create your own beginnings. You are charged to take charge of all things made by knowing again that you were made for exploration of minds and hearts and bodies and oceans and art and wilderness and mountains and skies. You will dance. You were spun on the potter's wheel to make you feel the dance whirling inside each other. You were called to a ballet of wind and waves gliding to notes of blushing moonlight and cloud silhouettes. But in the dance, you will be stung. In the dance, you will struggle. In the dance, you will cry. In the dance, you will become weary. In the dance, you will stumble. In the dance, you will brush grace. In the dance, you will be quenched by peace. In the dance, you will turn truth into forgiveness and dreams into a future. In the dance of marriage, you will find and live the beginning when my heart first dreamed a dance for you. So let marriage turn you, spin you, hold you. Let the dance of marriage be a compass, a guide. Marriage was the beginning. It was me dancing in you. Never stop the dance. I love to see us dance. Dear Heavenly Father, you created marriage and you created the dance and you played the first notes as a man and a woman engaged each other in the wonder and the glory and the miracle and mystery of something so magnificent, something so awe-inspiring. And to this day, we stand back and we are quiet when we see love, when we see two people so in love, in love with each other and in love with you. Father, press 
the dancing lessons into our hearts today. I pray for a spark of a holy moment to be planted in each man's heart, in each woman's heart today, who comes with a marriage, who just needs that touch to hear the music again, to start dancing again. Oh, Heavenly Father, we'll come before you. We are humbled to be here. Put your holy hands upon us now. Let us hear the music again. Let us dance well as you dance in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Until 